0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. My name is Corey DiBiase. I am your host. Now, last time, actually for the last couple episodes, we've been talking about various versions of the idea that fundamentally human beings are not able to make free choices. That what we think are our choices are in fact the product of determination by physics or by genetics or by our upbringing or by our acculturation or by some kind of bossy mess of a combination of all those. Now, as a reminder, our purpose in exploring this was not to prove this idea but really to understand its ramifications and to try to learn uh, what the absence of freedom could tell us about the presence of freedom. And I think we'll see going forward that our conversations about why we might not be free will in fact inform us as we start to consider how we actually are free. But, you know, that's for a little bit later. Today, I want to start a conversation about why it's so difficult to explore and define these kinds of ideas, to, to develop working explanations, naturalist explanations, remember, of course, working naturalist explanations, you know, not just for freedom and free will, but for all these related notions we've been discussing, uh, self-consciousness, everything that we refer back to and sort of uh, file under this larger concept of the phenomena of mind as we as we think about it. So we're not, as we want to start exploring them, and we keep coming back to this, right? This idea that there's that it's there's just something very, very difficult about explaining these ideas, about uh, even exploring these ideas, and it always comes back to something we don't quite understand. We just feel like something's missing every time we come up with some kind of explanation. So to explain why that is, or to, to begin to explore why that is, we're not going to start with some kind of grand philosophical conundrum really we want to start with our own personal emotional connection to these ideas and the way we live with them and experience them and talk about them in our day-to-day lives. Because we're going to see not only some emotional connections that are shaping the way we think about things, we're going to of course see the way we've been using language, not only in our own lifetimes, but actually for millennia, both of these factors together has shaped this challenge to be what it is for us today. Um, And we're also going to see, I hope, I I certainly think, that as we better understand these, these conceptual challenges that are keeping us from creating what we believe are viable explanations for these phenomena, as we better understand those challenges, we will inherently start to better understand the phenomena we're trying to explain in the first place. So, put it differently explaining why we have such a hard time explaining free will, explaining why that problem is so hard for us to not only to develop an explanation, but to accept any explanation that comes to us, the more we understand that, the more we're actually going to understand about the fundamental nature of free will and how that operates for us and how... Again, how it really works in our day-to-day lives and how it really operates when we're out there in the world making actual, real, free choices. Now, for the next few episodes, uh, I'm going to be taking my kind of broad conceptual cues from the philosopher Daniel Dennett. Now, I believe Dennett, I've been a fan of Dennett's for as long as I've been thinking about these things, and I think Dennett does great and, of course, what I think is very convincing work on the question of free will. Actually, he works on on all the big questions of mind. So he's thrown some elbows in regard to free will. He's explained consciousness. He's taken a stance on intentionality. And finally, he's shown us that the mind-body problem really isn't such a problem after all. Dennett is a contemporary American philosopher, and he's made a point of working throughout his career. He's worked very closely with neuroscientists and psychologists and evolutionary biologists and computer scientists and and others in the scientific community and in the intellectual community generally, who he believed could arm him with the information that he needs to round out a real, sort of rich, naturalistic, philosophical view of the human mind. And and to be clear, I'm not following Dennett chapter and verse here. I'm trying to work within the conceptual framework that he lays out but then perhaps delve into some different details than than he has in the past. Thus, at least at first, we're not going to get directly into too many Dennett quotes, per se, Um, but we'll just have to know that he's there, uh, hopefully kind of sitting on my shoulder and doing his very best, his level best, to, I guess, keep me out of trouble. So, in any event, when we try to define to explain any aspect of the mind, and meaning, again, as we've said, that, that includes free will, that includes consciousness, that includes selfhood. Um, actually, it includes, and you can take this as an example, just what it means to have a kind of rich, beautiful, say, artistic experience. So when we ask how a mere pile of neurons, how the, the normal, boring, physical stuff that is our brain could possibly account for the the singular experience I have when listening to Glenn Gould play Brahms, well, okay, so if I pose that question and then I hear the response that, well, actually, you know, it's it's a hundred billion neurons, and they're all working together, and they're, they're relying on, and they're feeding off of a series of coded memories of, of sensations and social interactions and words and countless other experiences that contextualize and enrich each new experience. It, it, all, it all may be true, right, this explanation that I hear, it may be very true, but it lacks the flourish, it lacks the drama that the structure of the original question leads me to expect, leads me to want. The question compels us to be concerned with what we've been calling the, the almost magical nature of having these experiences. So, we're trying to explain the kind of aching, voluminous, delicate beauty of the intermezzo and E-flat, and, and then to explain how it is that I could experience that beauty. So if, if that's what the bar is, needless to say, I want an answer with a little bit of flair, you know, an answer that in and of itself somehow starts to contain the actual beauty of Glenn Gould's piano. So put differently, I want an answer that includes some of the feeling of the actual experience itself. So I want an answer that includes, somehow includes, the phenomena that we're trying to explain. So now, why is that? Where does that impulse come from? You know, when we ask how an airplane works, we don't expect when we're hearing the explanation to feel like we're 30,000 feet in the air. I mean, really, we don't even expect to feel like we're standing in a line. So, so what's the difference here that makes our expectations for these kinds of explanations so, I guess, exceptional? Well, let's start with something like an origin story, because, you know, I, I've heard those those are popular and, you know, we're always thinking about ratings, we want to get our popularity up. So let's, let's talk about an origin story right now. When I was a kid, I'd ask myself these kinds of rhetorical philosophical questions that Probably weren't actually that meaningful, but which nonetheless produced this kind of mix of existential confusion and excitement, which actually I assume is the root of why I've always been fascinated by philosophy. So, you know, take for an example, uh, does the red that I see look the same as the red that you see? A- anyway, you, you get the point. These, these kinds of open ended, relatively sophomoric uh, kind of uh, philosophical questions. Anyway, it was around this same time of life, I'd see these commercials asking viewers to give, you know, less than the cup of coffee, less than the price of a cup of coffee to feed and clothe an impoverished child living somewhere in the world. So seeing that, it was with this kind of mix of guilt and fear that I'd ask myself, well, what if I had been born in a different country? What if I had been born as a different person? Now, from a philosophical perspective, to make any kind of sense to this, we need to quickly flush out some details, right? What exactly does it mean to be Cori, but from a different country, speaking a different language, and having been raised in vastly different economic circumstances? Well, probably it doesn't actually mean that much. That Cory, that that, that Cory who, by the way, likely also has a different name, a a different body, and who presumably isn't uh, spending their free time using commercials as stepping off points for their philosophical musings, well, that Cory is likely to bear very, very little resemblance to me. Almost none at all, aside from the fact that that we're presumably both human beings. And yet, isn't there a draw to, to questions like this? And here's the thing, if if you want to understand why I believe there is a draw, if you want to kind of feel what I'm talking about, don't ask this question about me, ask this question about yourself, ask of yourself, is it, what would it mean for you to have been born in a different place as a different person in totally different circumstances? The difference is essential between asking that about yourself and then, or asking it about someone else. And the difference is essential and we'll discuss the reasons why. But when you consider this idea that you, the real you, could be an entirely different person and that it would still be you, that that you could have been born anywhere, been anything or anyone, and that it's still sensible to call that entirely different person you. Well, for me, it it comes down to feeling that there's some essence that is me, quote unquote me, the, the real me that's down beneath kind of and behind all of the details of, of my physical presence of my circumstances of my experiences of my memory. So there's a me that's down there deep back and behind all of the happenstantial circumstances that actually define who I am. There's a real me deep under all that stuff. You can take away all the details and there's the real me, a kind of real Corey. Again, you know, I, I'm uh, wildly waving my fingers in this little bunny uh, bunny ear motion to say that all this is quote-unquote the real quote-unquote Cory, who is over or under or behind or maybe somehow at the control panel, at the steering wheel of all these other functions and descriptions. And perhaps more to the point in all of this, the way that many philosophers have historically talked about these phenomena that we're so concerned with, with, um, you know, selfhood, consciousness, free will, the mind, all the rest of it, the way that these ideas have traditionally been talked about somehow presupposes that there actually is some degree of sense in this question. So whatever traits my environment, my socialization, my education would create in me, there's still some kind of core, quote-unquote core, Underneath the skin, underneath the body, underneath the genes, underneath the brain, underneath all of the specific incidental things that my selfhood has kind of accrued over the course of a life lived, however, over however, however many years. And it's that core that I'm asking about this sort of immutable, unchangeable spark all the way down there at the center that I'm asking about when I wonder what it would be, uh, what it would be like if I, again, quote unquote, I had been born in Chinese, that unchangeable real me that's still there. Once you change all of the nurture and all of the nature and, Well, whatever else, if there's anything else that doesn't fall into those two categories, you've changed everything but that central core. Now, I believe the same basic dynamic is involved in this thought experiment, if you can call it that. As as applies to all these different questions that we've been asking. So when we ask, uh, when we kind of resist that idea that uh, the activity of neurons could account for the experience of listening to Glenn Gould or of having consciousness or of making choices um, or of any other aspect of mind get this the, the 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 root causes here for why i resist that explanation and why I kind of come to feel like there's this some sort of me that is over and beyond or below or behind or whatever any of the other descriptions about me that you can generate so just like when we say that there's some aspect of me that's there behind all of my experiences that you know you that you could kind of unplug that special spark from the me that I am now quote unquote and plug it into some totally different person, and it would, in some very important way, still be me, even though every description you could possibly apply, even even though all that has changed, somehow this would still be me, that fact and, and our sort of instinctive response when we hear naturalistic explanations for the mind, there's something very tightly connected between those two things. So we're always looking for some special extra, but of course always undefinable, and perhaps necessarily undefinable thing that, you know, by its nature, we can never quite explain, but without which we feel like, uh, you know, I would not be me, you would not be you. And without accounting for that special, undefinable je ne sais quoi, there's no explanation of these phenomena of mine which will really pass muster for me more on an, an instinctive and emotional level than, than really even on an intellectual level. Of course, I, I don't think any of this is really sensible, but the allure remains, and it's, and it's a very powerful force, I think, in the way we think about these things. So, So again, why is that? Well, let, let's start with a really simple one. Consider this. Consider everything you've ever heard and everything you've ever read And everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever hoped, everything you've ever understood, everything you've ever loved, everything you've ever seen, everything you have ever experienced. And now in that, in that pile of experiences include, make sure you include things that we would call internal uh, experiences that are quote unquote inside of, of, of your mind, of your brain. So, Uh, experiences of your own emotions experiences of your memories experiences of your mental state that only you are privy to all of that pile all that up and and try and think about it all at once as as best you can so now for every experience that you have ever had there is one common thread and of course that is you in all of your experiences you are there. You know it sounds pretty obvious, but it's it's actually pretty significant. In everything you've experienced, you are right there, and maybe even more importantly, you are always in the exact same place. Now there are going to be a, a couple different ramifications to this seemingly very simple fact. Um, first of all. In a way, when I think about myself, thinking about all this from the perspective of my quote-unquote self, however I choose to define that, that self of mine, the perspective, that constant perspective from which everything uh, that I experienced is experienced, that's now woven into everything that I know. Everything I think, you know, again, everything I have ever experienced, that common thread is in there, tying it all together, pulling it all together, keeping it centered around a kind of, you know, central gravitational point, if you will. And again, in all of these experiences, as I'm thinking about them, my self, quote unquote, the self that is having these experiences, it's always positioned in the same spot in relation to those experiences so i mean it, essentially myself begins at the exact point where my experiences stop and I, if this is all kind of if i choose to to interpret it this way and if i'm kind of really um, obsessed with looking inward if i if i'm really looking very closely inward at all of my mental states it becomes much more instinctive to kind of think in this way but if we chose to interpret it this way, we could say that we, okay, we have this self that is the recipient of all of these experiences, both our external and internal experiences, things coming from outside and things that are happening right in our own mind. Um, that self is, is there in that same point And it's, you would kind of think about it almost like it's it's pressed up against the glass and it's behind that glass that all the experience that 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 self is having all of that experience is on the other side of the glass and and there that self is always at the same point receiving all of those experiences again Be those experiences the dog that's barking in the lawn next door, or be those experiences the experience that I have of my own mind, my own mental states, my own memories, my own emotions. So remember that one of the sort of foundational things that our brain is extremely good at. And I and I mean brain in this sense. This is a this is a neuroscientific trait. This is not some some aspect of the spirit necessarily. This is very clearly identifiable neuroscientific trait. One thing that our brain is very good at is pattern recognition, right? So faces we uh, there's a whole area of our brain that is designed simply to be able to recognize and to differentiate faces language that's another pattern that obviously we are very good at, at uh at recognizing but you could say mathematics you could say music um and, i mean even just think about it we instinctively change any series of events into kind of a story with a beginning a middle and an end d- despite the fact that really, you know, when we think about the actual nature of experience, very little actually happens that way. And actually nothing happens that way. Nothing begins, uh, proceeds, and then ends in in a kind of strict storyboard fashion. We just have a, a really hard time thinking about the world unless we can impose on it that kind of pattern, that pattern that we have for what stories are supposed to be, what experiences, what shape a series of experiences is supposed to take so that we can make some kind of sense out of it. So then it's perfectly natural for us to instinctively look at all of our experiences, every experience we've ever had. And again, and, and I, I said instinctively for, for a, a uh, that's something we definitely want to keep in mind this this doesn't necessarily have to be something that we sat down and and did one afternoon this is something which is happening instinctively based on the way our 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 minds and actually our brains work so it's perfectly natural then for us to instinctively look at all of our experiences every one of our experiences and isolate commonalities right isolate patterns and our own presence in and in relation to every experience we have ever had, that's really the only common thread that we'll find that truly unites every one of these different experiences. And of course, then it's not a very big step to take to say that that, that common element of every one of my experiences, well, then if, if that's the one constant in all the world shouldn't that perspective that common aspect of all these experiences shouldn't that be a a real independent uh totally separate thing all on its own that's that's fundamentally distinct from all these other other experiences and now it's one thing as we're thinking about this it's one thing of course for me to be able to separate myself out from say, you know, other people. Obviously, I need to know that there's a difference between who I am and who that person is, who you are. If I can't tell the difference there, well, that's going to make for a very, very confusing worldview and one which will uh, probably very quickly start to impose itself on you in ways that you just have no interest in whatsoever. Um, I mean, and equally, it's it's important that I be able to distinguish myself from this desk or from the floor or from, you know, even from the air around me. I need to be able to say what is me and what is everything else. Okay, well, that makes perfect sense. That's an important function. But then it's quite a different thing when that same instinctive function starts to apply itself to me distinguishing myself from some of these internal experiences that I have, the experiences that I have of my own mind, of my own mental states. So when I start to distinguish, distinguish myself from my emotions, myself from my memories, myself from my own thought processes, which again, in a very, very real way, I experience all of those things in a very similar way to, to, to how I experience the world as a whole. So this function, this, this little pattern function that I've got going in my brain that's, that's helping me separate myself out and tell that I am not this lamp, which is very helpful... Well, it's kind of just going to keep, you know, it, it's like a little machine that's processing all this stuff. It's not going to stop just because there's an arbitrary line there. It's going to say, okay, for every experience, we're seeking a pattern. We're isolating that pattern. We're calling this commonality a thing unto itself. So suddenly I, quote unquote, I, I'm going to, going to, I'm going to wear my face fingers out here. This is a, a very, very specific kind of, of, of calisthenic exercise I'm giving myself here during this this episode with, with my little uh, perpetual bunny ears that I'm making. But just in the way I'm separating myself out from this lamp, I'm also separating myself out from the emotions I experience, the mental states I experience, the memories I experience, the dreams I experience, Ev- any kind of mental state that you want to identify, which again, those are Those are are just as much part of our experiences as are any of the things coming at us from outside. So then, when I ask what it means for me, quote-unquote, me, to have grown up as an entirely different person in an entirely different place... As, you know, using an entirely different language in an entirely different body with an entirely different name, uh, with an entirely different self-image, self-conception, uh, and and with totally separate different mental realities than the one that I have now. What I'm really asking, well, I, no, I put it differently, what I mean to say when I say I, in this case, the, the quote-unquote me that could be the same whether I am Corey right here or whether I am Corey that was raised in, in Russia. I, it, what I'm saying in, the, in that instance is that that entity, what I'm talking about when I say I in this case, when I say me in this case, is that nebulous but you ubiquitous entity that's there on the receiving end of every experience I have ever had. And that, again, I am able to separate, I'm actually compelled to separate, at least conceptually, from every experience I've ever had, including the experience of my personal mental states. So another important thing to keep in mind here is, is that whenever we're thinking about these kinds of issues... Well, okay, you know, this is kind of a scientific discussion, quote unquote, to some extent. So when anything is, when we're talking about theories, well, immediately we want to be able to test those theories, right? So if I tell you that you don't have free will because of the way that you drive to the store... Well, isn't the first thing you do to, to kind of do an internal examination and an, an internal check, uh, sort of looking under the hood of your own mind to a- attempt to observe it actually working so that you can then verify whether that statement that I made is, is in any way true or whether it in any way reflects your own mental states? In a sense, of course, this is the most quote-unquote rigorous examination, rigorous experimentation that I'm able to do when I'm attempting to understand these phenomena of mine. But you do have to wonder, given everything we're talking about, you have to wonder whether it's possible for us to accurately and observe, observe and evaluate these kinds of phenomena. I, I forget who it was, and I um the quote just now reoccurred to me, so I, I should have looked this up, but who's was the philosopher who said that that examining our own consciousness is a lot like trying to bite our own teeth? It's in it's inherently paradoxical. And this is where this question of ego, of if you will, my own metaphysical vanity, this is where the question of ego comes into play. And yes, yes, of course, of course, there is ego involved in all of this. So the, the nature of consciousness, the nature of selfhood, the nature of mind, my ability to make, to have free will and to make free choices. The it, you know We're talking about these like very abstract philosophical questions, and, and that's appropriate, but they're not abstract questions for us really in our day to day lives. Answering these questions will tell us a lot about ourselves, uh, which means again that we want these answers to have a certain caliber. We want the answers that we come up with to questions like "What is consciousness?", "What is free will?", "What is mind?" We want the answer to those answers to those questions to be as grand as we hope that we are ourselves. So, can we have free will if we're just a hyper-complex biological machine? Can a brain make a mind? Am I, quote-unquote, I, is all of me, just a bunch of organs and cells and ultimately atoms interacting? Each of these questions, in each of these questions, there's this, this kind of implied threat to who I believe myself to be, what I believe myself to be. I mean... You mean I'm nothing more than normal, boring, physical stuff? How can that be? Well, and, and take another example while we're on this point of how we tend to lead ourselves astray when we're trying to understand these phenomena as they occur to us, as we experience them. We keep asking if it's possible to produce my mind with just normal, boring, physical stuff. Well, you know, let's be honest— Whatever discomfort I have imagining myself as nothing but normal, boring, physical stuff, well, I have an easier time accepting that you are just normal, boring, physical stuff. And, and I mean, no offense here, but but let's face facts. Unlike me, you are not magically omnipresent in, in every experience of the world, at, at least not every experience of the world that I've ever had you're not woven into the the very nature of space and time and actually of thought itself so when i do that internal check to see whether or not a theory of mind and consciousness and free will when when i'm checking to see whether this feeling this theory kind of feels right quote unquote i'm going to do so in reference to myself not obviously in reference to yourself And this is the same reason why it's easier for me to dismiss the idea of, so if we ask, were you, could, could, is it sensible to ask, could you have been born in a different place at a different time in totally different circumstances? Could you be a totally different person and still be you? Well, from the outside looking in, from my perspective thinking about you, no, of course not. If you're totally different, then you're totally different. What's so hard about this? There's, there's, If there are no commonalities other than the basic fact that you presumably remain a homo sapiens, uh, then, then of course there's no sense in asking what it means for you to still be you, even when you're totally different than you. Um, so I, so I'm very, it's very easy for me to just dismiss that possibility when I'm thinking about you very, very much more difficult for me to dismiss that possibility when I'm thinking about myself. The only thing that actually keeps me from being too pushy about the idea of you just being normal, boring, physical stuff and there, and of there not being some kind of magical spark down at the, the very center that, that makes you what you are is that if I am really get pushy about that, well, chances are you could turn around and start saying the same thing about me, and, well, as we've discussed, that that is simply unacceptable. So, all of that is step one in explaining why it is so hard for us to accept a kind of naturalistic description of the mind. And, and really, it does come down to vanity, and it comes down to the vanity of that the, uh, the ubiquitous nature of our self that is woven into everything that we then kind of isolate out and call a thing on its own, even though there's no sensible way to define that. How do you, how do you define the the me that is there to have experiences, the self, the Corey that is there to experience things while separating out that Corey from every experience it has ever had Including, you know, experiences of mental state, experiences of memory, experiences of everything. We say we get rid of all of that, but still the spark remains, and there's some kind of sensible, explanatory uh, juice that 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 separate spark has. Well, no, again, it it doesn't work that way, but we see the allure of it as we kind of consider, again, the, the basic structure of who and what we are and how we proceed in the world. So if that's step one in explaining why it is so hard for us to accept naturalist explanation for these phenomena of mind, well then step two, which by the way is very, very tightly woven and enmeshed with with step one, with the first part of our explanation, step two is, is the way we have always used, used language. The way we have used language to describe these ideas, the way we have used language millennia upon millennia upon millennia to build these ideas up to make them more complex to both explore them but also to create them as we as we go about that process and again the way that all of this has occurred for now thousands of years so we talked last time about language right and and this kind of vital role that language plays in you know at the very least that the the role that language plays in showing us why we need to think that we have free will. E- even if we don't, we need to think we have free will because we wanna be able to uh, have it mean something when we wanna blame someone else for something, right? We we want accountability and responsibility to be functional uh, pieces of our society And to do that, we need to be able to ascribe free will to at least to other people. I need to be able to ascribe free will to you so that I can blame you and have it mean something when you do something wrong. But, you know, uh, this, we come back to this question of, uh, you know, turnabout is fair play. So naturally you, uh, you're going to want to be able to have the same expectations about me as, as much as I'd like to find a way to have you be responsible and not me. So it's out of that dynamic that need to create an idea of responsibility that essentially the notion of freedom is born because uh you need to be free we need to have some kind of conception of controlling our own actions for us to then be responsible for those actions so if that was we we talked about language in in the way it played out in that scenario But there's a lot more to be said about language when it comes to explaining its relationship to and and explaining the creation of all of these ideas, these phenomena of mind, of every aspect of free will, of mind, of selfhood, of consciousness, and all the rest. So think of it this way. Over the centuries, over the millennia, we have built up language to the point that it's like a world unto itself. It's, It's akin to mathematics. So it both refers to the world, but it also operates independently, and and in reference only to itself. So historically, then, we, and in this case, we, uh, by we, I mean the human species, we have described ourselves over and over and over again, across, again, the course of millennia. And each of those descriptions, in its way, has further built up both the real and the perceived complexity and you know if you will the magicalness of who and what we are and what these phenomena of mind and free will and consciousness and selfhood what the magicalness of those phenomena and the complexity of those phenomena so here's the funny thing about about language generally speaking words you know at least a substantial number of them words often refer to things right So, for example, chair the word means chair the thing. And I I think we can all more or less accept that. That that is not a a sort of radical philosophical statement. And by the way, yes, for those of you who listened to the Prolegomena episode, um, we've kind of talked about these ideas before, but bear with me as we want to do a quick refresher in case you have not heard that episode. Um, And I also do want to take this in a slightly different direction. So, on language, as we've said... There are words that refer to tangible objects in the world. Chair, you know, has been working for us so far, I keep talking about it, so let's keep talking about chair. Chair is an an example of a word that refers to a thing, a tangible object in the world. But then there are words that refer to things that are not objects, and which arguably are not at all tangible. So freedom is certainly one of these. Mind is one of these, consciousness, selfhood, all of these, all of our our greatest hits here, all of our favorites. These are all uh, uh, things that are in no way tangible, things that we can't look into the world and say, ah, yes, there it is. This is what I mean. This is what I've been referring to every time I say free will. Now, say I spend a whole podcast imagining these kind of extreme different versions of chairs. So uh, a chair that is so big that everyone could sit in it at once a chair that goes on top of a person rather than a person going on top of a chair or a a chair. How about this? How about a chair that's made by bending actual space time such that we wouldn't actually need to sit down like an activity. We would be sitting inherently uh, just based on the, the nature of the fabric of the universe and our relationship to it. Well, I can go on all day like this. Right. But at the end of the day, the fact that there are the fact of there being chairs in the world, it stops me from being able to really have much of an impact on the, if you will, the the core idea of what a chair is. I, I can be as playful as i like. It isn't going to keep you, uh, after I'm done, it's not going to keep you from associating the word chair with an actual chair out there in the world, and, and that, of course, is going to reground your concept. Uh, any sort of mind-bending notions of chairs that we explored together in, in this uh, you know, probably not very exciting podcast, well, you can set those all to the side the next time you go and just sit down in an actual chair, but again... Not so with freedom. As we've said, this is a word that refers to an idea, or as we said in the Prologana, this is a word that in a very real way is simply made of other words. So if enough people talk about freedom, or mind, or self, or consciousness, if enough people talk about these phenomena in a certain way for long enough, it starts to affect the way that idea is fundamentally constructed. And then when you have millennia upon millennia of people talking about and thinking about these ideas, then all of those words, all of that meaning is going to pile up. It's going to add to the overall weight of the idea, the overall, and as a consequence, not just the weight of the idea itself, but the weight of what the idea means, and then, of course, the expectations that we will have when we set about trying to explain that idea. So we, again, meaning the collective humanity of all world cultures— We have been thinking and speaking and writing and listening and reading and feeling about these ideas for thousands of years. So with nothing tangible to tie any of these words to, and with no practical limit to the weight of meaning that these words can take on, you know, as more and more and more other words and ideas are built up on top of them and around them and associated with them, then as a consequence of that, the way we speak the way we think, and the way we write about free will can and has fundamentally altered and expanded and changed over time. And I don't mean just for us, not just for me, but for anyone who happens to experience some or all of these words, some or all of these thoughts, some or all of these ideas that we are experiencing now. And and, and this is important. I don't need to have read every written word on free will for it to matter to our collective understanding that there have been a nearly infinite number of words written about free will. So, think about how this so it doesn't have to be a, 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 a matter of direct exposure to all of these words that have been spoken about free will. Uh, it's, there's, there's a kind of collective understanding that develops and that is what I'm fundamentally learning from. And I'm not, this, none of this is mystical, by the way. I'm not talking about some separate consciousness or some separate ball of, of knowledge out there. I'm talking about a very practical way that, that these ideas work and are disseminated in the world. So, so think about it practically, how do these, how do these ideas sort of circulate and reproduce themselves in the world? Say you have a group of philosophers writing about freedom in a a very convincing way, you know, whether it's an accurate way or not, we don't need to worry about that for right now, say it's, it's very convincing, it's very popular. So you have these philosophers writing about freedom for however many, say for a hundred years, there's this group of philosophers writing in a very specific way about freedom. Um, And they're developing these ideas that really have a very significant influence. I don't need to go read those philosophers to absorb some version, some remnant, some echo of the ideas that they put forward. If they're so influential, those ideas will have made their way into literature and they'll have made their way into plays and now into television and into comic books and into Facebook and and into any kind of mechanism by which ideas flow and circulate and are exchanged. So if we say that words accumulate over centuries around certain kinds of ideas you know, freedom is talked about a lot in a lot of different ways, with a lot of different images, a lot of different associations, and that's been going on for hundreds, thousands of years. All of those words and ideas collect, and, and just as we said, they, they sort of permeate through the network of the way these ideas move around and get transmitted practically in human society. And the bottom line impact of all this is, is twofold. First, it it makes uh, the work that we're trying to do here a heck of a lot harder. All this weight of words and meaning and associations that gets built up around ideas like free will, again, like we said, it's also becomes the weight of expectation for whatever kind of explanation we finally come up with. You know, all these little echoes of, okay, a philosopher in, in the year 700 had an amazing idea about freedom, maybe I've never heard of this philosopher, but someone else heard about it maybe it was a priest giving a sermon maybe that maybe that sermon became popular amongst a number of other priests maybe it kind of made its way into the collective understanding or even just the understanding in in within the priesthood well that made its way into a popular novel that might not have been written for another 500 years but somehow in some form that idea and all those associations persisted and now it's in another aspect of the, if you will, the, the bloodstream of how our ideas circulate in humankind. So all of that then, all of those echoes going back to the year 700, actually going back before that, all of those echoes, we're going to want to somehow, that's yet another thing that we're going to expect to somehow, have be verified or recognized or 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 even reproduced in whatever kind of explanation of free will we finally come up with. even if we don't have, again, this very explicit uh, understanding of this idea that's that's sort of echoing through the the idea sphere, through the bloodstream of our of the way ideas circulate. even if I don't have an, an explicit understanding of it, the simple fact of all those associations and the kind of gravity of the way that they play against each other that is going to raise the bar of what i am expecting from an explanation so again that, that's point 1 and, and second all of this the, as we think about this phenomena it points us back to the very real very important and you know you know depending on your point of view either terrifying or inspiring notion that it's up to us to create the meaning of an idea like freedom. Now, this is, uh, to me, among the most fascinating and fantastic capacities that we as human beings have. Um, So Think about it. I mean, we can take an idea that never had to mean anything. Again, this is not the idea of chair that we're playing around with here. This is an idea that that fundamentally didn't necessarily have to mean anything ever, but we've managed to first create that idea, and then we've managed to build it over the generations into something of such profound value and meaning that it's got this just huge, overwhelming impact today, to the point that we we feel like it's it's so big that we can't explain it at all despite the fact that it was precisely our explanations, our talking about it, our thinking about it, our exploring it, that in a very real real way created it in the first place. So, and, and all that is, by the way, in, in no way to distract you from the fact that, yeah, yes, this is very important because we could just as easily destroy these ideas for the exact same reason, because they are entirely in our care. They are entirely in our keeping. It's up to us to maintain these ideas because they're ideas that we've first of all fundamentally created and that we continue to create in the way we, uh, you know, again, over centuries, over millennia, continue to talk and think about and explore them. And I'm afraid that's where we're going to need to leave it for today. So next time... We're going to start to drill into some of the specifics and flip from talking purely about these challenges, why it's so hard for us to create uh, some kind of working explanation for these phenomena of free will and mind and selfhood and all the rest. We're going to flip from that to starting to look at what the challenges tell us about how we can actually craft positive working explanations for these phenomena. We're going to start by talking about Richard Dawkins and uh, a tool that he can offer us to help to better understand how this process of ideas getting passed back and forth between people and actually uh, amongst society and between generations, how this process actually works. From there, we're going to look back into history, and we're going to see the way, you know, we've been talking about this notion that the way we speak about things, the way we think and write about things, sort of fundamentally changes certain ideas, ideas like free will, mind, consciousness, and all the rest. Well... We're going to look back into history and see some very specific examples of this that, even though they happened a millennia ago or, or more, continue to shape the way we talk about these phenomena to this day. And finally, uh, next time, we're going to do a little bit of Shakespeare, but really that's just to, uh, to you know, pander to the youth market. Typical, typical thing like that. Um, so... In any event, uh, as always, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks very much for tuning in, and I hope to see you next time. I'm looking forward to it.